so I completely agree that it is an activity of daily living um, and that it is a huge part of not everyone's life, but a lot of people's lives. And it can be a huge contributor to um, people's self-esteem, to mm -hmm. their quality of life. Like it's not just about whether or not people can bone, right? It's so much right. more complicated than that. And it means so much more to people than that. And I think that meaning so much more is part of why people are hesitant to talk about it and why as providers, we get a little like squeamish about it. Um, sometimes that's our own stuff. And sometimes that's we're worried about hitting someone else's stuff. And again, I think talking about why this could be important to this person's care or how it could be related and then asking them if they, you can ask those questions is, is kind of the move. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT. On today's episode, we have with us Dr. Christina Holland. She is a pelvic health specialist who provides inclusive care in the Denver, Colorado area. What she teaches us about today, you're not going to want to miss. If you're like me and you don't really know exactly what a pelvic health therapist does and you have no idea really when you need to refer a patient to pelvic health therapist and you have patients in the ED whose diagnoses may be impacted by a pelvic health issue, you cannot miss this episode. She's going to break it down, simplify it, and help us learn what we need to screen, what we need to be on the lookout, and how to talk to our patients in a trauma-informed, appropriate manner. Don't miss this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT, and I'm really excited today to have Dr. Christina Holland with us, and I'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Christina Holland. I use she, her pronouns. And I am a pelvic floor physical therapist in Denver, Colorado. Um, I work with folks across the gender identity spectrum who are experiencing primarily pelvic pain or pain during intercourse. Additionally, um, urinary leakage or incontinence, uh, fecal incontinence, um, or anything related to pelvic surgeries, whether that is hysterectomy um, or gender related gender affirming surgeries or pregnancy. I think that a lot of people listening are probably like, okay, so you're not an ED. PT. Mm -hmm. And my goal for this podcast uh, in most recently has been to find people that are experts in their field and then apply your expertise to how we have to practice in the ED. So we have to be able to see anything, anyone, and get that person moving in the right direction. So what I'm excited to talk to you about today is how we how we cannot miss pelvic health issues, how we can make appropriate referrals, how we can provide more sensitive and inclusive care, and uh, really just have a better understanding of what pelvic health PT is. So first off, when I was in PT school, it wasn't even something that we talked about. And if we did, it was like called women's health. And I remember on the boards, there were questions about it. And I was like, why? Why do I know nothing about this? So can you tell us a little bit, like, what's the most recent thought process around this area of practice? It's no longer called women's health. It's very all-encompassing. And I'm sure you do way more than we think. Yeah. So it's been such an interesting couple of years. So even in the last two years, the Academy of Pelvic Health, which used to be two years ago, the Academy of Women's Health, um, is has changed their name. So 
just to say that you're not super behind if you're still calling it women's health or anything like that. Um, but for sure, every single person of every single gender has a pelvis. So, and there's something that pelvic floor physical therapy can often do for folks, particularly if they're having issues um, in the bathroom, whether that's keeping things in or getting things out or related to pain. So um, already I like to mention that, you know, Pelvic health is the most inclusive term. Um, certainly there are people who are still calling it women's health. Um, and that's just good for you to know too, I think, especially if you're making referrals, um, because there are going to be pelvic health or women's health providers who may not see people who have penises, who may not have experience with transgender people. So I, it is referring to, um, so you can make appropriate referrals. Okay. I think that makes total sense. I know our hospital provides gender affirming surgery. So I've had some exposure to that and the protocols that go with that, at least in that acute care setting, but not as much in the outpatient setting. So I think knowing that there are people in the community that can provide that level of care is important as well as we yeah, see more absolutely. of that happening, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah, for sure. I, and I think it's been a really interesting um, process for us to learn as we look into those gender affirming care protocols, how physical therapy and occupational therapy can and should be involved in guiding that process. So I'd be interested in maybe in a whole nother podcast to learn about what happens in the outpatient realm and how we can best support those patients. Oh, yeah, I would love to talk about that another time. Yeah. And, but question for you. So pelvic health feels to me like kind of scary. Like it's a scary thing to talk to people about. It's a scary thing to even consider. I don't, I certainly don't feel qualified. There was a day recently where one of my coworkers and I like literally were Googling pelvic floor muscles and like trying to like kind of maybe narrow down the source of this individual's pain. And obviously our treatment plan was to refer that patient to an expert, but how do we even approach this conversation? Yeah. So I think specifically if folks are experiencing pain and they're pointing to their lower abdomen, it's start, it's time to start asking questions about blood. I think you should be, you're probably asking anyway, particularly related to fall risk, right? So if you're asking already about bladder and bowel, you want to ask about constipation, you want to ask about urinary frequency and urgency. I think a lot of people end up falling um, because they have to get to the bathroom really quickly. Uh, in those instances, a pelvic floor referral is so helpful. It can be totally life-changing for that person. Um, the The question I think that often gets missed um, and even gets missed into a pelvic floor referral is if people are experiencing fecal incontinence um, mm -hmm. because people are not very um, stoked to describe that to another human. Yes. Um, so definitely asking about fecal incontinence. Um, I will be so honest with you. I don't think you need to know the names of the pelvic floor muscles <laughs> if you know that they start at the pubic symphysis and they end at the coccyx. So as long as you know that that's kind of what they do and that their roles are in getting um, urine and feces out or keeping it in, that it plays a role in sexual function, that it plays a role in strength and stability, um, then already you're in really good shape actually. I can absolutely see patients in my mind based on what you just said. So I'm thinking about our patients who, for example, have are on diuretics and mm -hmm. they need to go to the bathroom often and they're afraid to fall or they also have urinary incontinence on top of that. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is they stop taking their diuretics. They stop drinking water. 
and they get dehydrated, they get volume overloaded, like one of those two things, and then they get weaker and they fall. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this huge cycle. But I think what we often have a tendency to think is, oh, it's just a mobility issue, but it's mm -hmm. more than that. Yeah. And it's so interesting because urinary incontinence can be it's often not hard to change, but the but you have to find the right reason that the incontinence is occurring, and that can be a little complicated. Um, so I think getting a referral, having someone you refer to for that can be hugely helpful. Um, I was just thinking about something else when you said that. Um, oh, I mean, yes, for sure, mobility and for sure strength, but also if you're seeing lower extremity weakness, their pelvic floor muscles are probably also quite weak. So that's something to consider. Um, another thing to consider is that one of the primary drivers of folks into assisted living facilities, into senior living homes, um, is urinary incontinence because people are very hesitant to talk about um, bladder and bowel incontinence and make their families deal with their bladder and bowel incontinence. And so we, I think we also can keep a lot of people out of rehab facilities longer um, if we get them appropriate referrals ahead of time. I think that makes a lot of sense. One barrier that I'm thinking, though, when you say that is I'm thinking about my patients who can only really tolerate home health physical therapy. Mm -hmm. Like they can't get out into the community. How do we best support those patients who might not be able to make it into a clinic like yours? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think if you have relationships with home health physical therapists, I honestly think that home health physical therapists in general should absolutely be asking these questions because it is yeah. such a significant that contributes to folks falling and also reduced quality of life. Um, and so I think, honestly, it's a little bit outside of, I think, what you can do. I do think, so there are some apps and there are some um, just online educational things that I think you can give folks. And the, the good news is, is that as long as people are not having persistent pelvic pain, and particularly if they are a geriatric patient, if they are one of those people that can really only tolerate home health, if they do have significant lower extremity weakness and at, or atrophy, giving them Kegels or pelvic floor muscle contractions is not going to hurt them. It's okay. at least worth a shot. Sometimes it doesn't it doesn't fully fix the problem, but between Kegels and glute bridges and sit-to-stands with a significant emphasis, especially for these folks who can really only tolerate home health, with a specific emphasis on really squeezing your glute muscles um, can be super helpful. The one thing to kind of look out for is whether or not if they are attempting to use their, sometimes you can cue glutes and transverse abdominis, but sometimes transverse abdominis, if you don't have good support from the pelvic floor muscles, will actually make people leak. So you kind of you can assess that pretty quickly, though, just in having folks try it and see if it makes them feel like they have to pee or not. Okay, that's definitely actionable. We can take that and send people home with that as well. And I think I'm also thinking like a good time to assess that would be while we're assessing their bathroom mobility as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. totally. And then when you talk about fecal incontinence. That's a huge question we ask in the ED, right? Because everybody's coming in with acute low back pain. Are you having mm -hmm. any loss of bowel or bladder control? Those are things that we talk to people about a lot. But I'm assuming there's a little more nuance than we need to send you straight to an MRI because you have some fecal mm -hmm. incontinence. Or when I ask people, is this new? And I get the answer, no, it's, it's not necessarily new. Oh, what do I do? Yeah, so I think... If they're saying no, it's not necessarily new, you want to ask questions, right, about when it happened. I think especially if they are cisgender women, so women who are assigned female at birth and have lived life experience as a woman, if they've ever been pregnant, um, 
those are times where you want to ask like, okay, how related is this to a previous pregnancy? The other thing that I think gets missed very frequently is postmenopausal women or even some perimenopausal women. Um, so as our estrogen decreases, our musculature globally decreases in size, right? Pelvic yes. floor muscles are already not very big to begin with. And it, it also changes the shape, the decrease in estrogen changes the shape of the urethra and changes the actual like um, uh, structural integrity in a way of the vulvar and vaginal tissue. Um, so that can be a huge contributor to urinary leakage um, as well as fecal incontinence to some extent. So particularly if you're working with someone who is postmenopausal or like um, they're just going through menopause now and it's kind of maybe it started when they were pregnant or postpartum, but it's like really ramping up that immediately like, makes me think that there's some hormonal component and they could really benefit probably from a GYN referral as well as a pelvic floor physical therapy, physical or occupational therapist. Okay. And then constipation I find is a huge issue with patients with low back pain, but I think the general rule of thumb in the ED is that it's not an emergency. It's not actually a big problem, but how often is this like a contributing factor to that low back pain that's turning into this vicious cycle that keeps that patient cycling in and out of the ED or keeps them from going to work and doing what they need to do? Yeah. I mean, I think very often, and I think untreated, how far are we going to let it go before now? It's like they're impacted um, because they really can't defecate. And so it, and there are so many contributing factors to constipation, um, that very often get missed. So I think that is like an ongoing kind of expanding, even expertise and information that pelvic floor physical therapists have, are having. Cause I know for myself, even five years ago, I was much less concerned about constipation than I am now, but for sure it can impact the low back pain. And also if people are having constipation, Yes, their very full bowels can contribute to their back pain, but also if their pelvic floor muscles aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, or if they're in spasm, or if they're activating at a time where they should be relaxing, all of that is also probably in and of itself contributing to the low back pain. Okay. So in a case like that, when I'm making a referral for this patient, do I refer them to a pelvic health therapist? Will they also be able to manage that low back pain or do they need to see an orthopedic therapist in addition to that? Or are there people that do both? Like what's your recommendation about best referral? Yeah, I think best referral is to go to a pelvic floor therapist first. I would anticipate that a pelvic floor therapist, PT or OT, is going to be able to also help manage that low back pain. Love it. Okay. Not always the reverse though. We can't always go to an orthopedic therapist and hope that that pelvic floor pain is going to get managed. Yeah, I do think that there is, that's another like missed opportunity. People should have a little bit more awareness just of, it's actually not that hard to work the pelvic floor stuff into the low back pain stuff. There's a yeah. lot of overlap because we're, we're really working with like the core and muscular imbalances, right? So it's just a completely missed opportunity kind of across the board. Um, but yes, pelvic floor physical therapists are going to know what to do about low back pain, or they're going to know that they don't know what to do and they'll refer out. Yeah, I think it falls into the category of things we we know that we don't know that we need to know a little bit more about. And I think it was maybe Mary Massery mm -hmm. who talked yep. about breathing and the can. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's probably about the extent of my pelvic floor knowledge is that if you, we've got a hole in the bottom of the can, it, it's really going to impact the entire core, the breathing, the stability, the function. Okay. Well, that's so more than most people. So you're <laughs> nailing it already. I talk to patients about it, like the Coke can. If it's closed, you can't squish it. If it's open at any point, it's going to crunch and, and cause some leakage. 
Okay, so takeaways from that. We need to screen all of our patients for bowel and bladder issues, especially and maybe always the patients who are high fall risk, mm-hmm. our patients with low back pain, our patients with other musculoskeletal issues. And just like when we're asking about home setup and like, how are you eating? How are you moving through your day? How is going to the bathroom? Exactly. Okay. I love that. Cause I think, I think a lot of times we think maybe that's like an OT type of issue, but really when we think about ADLs and we think about what patients have to be able to do and the fact that they have muscles and a whole body that needs to do this thing, it really is in the physical therapy realm of care as well. Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. And I love that OTs are also asking about those things. Um, but it, and it is like often a, if you, you know, the PTOT line and how it gets divided and all of that is, I think, very dependent on where you are setting wise yes. um, and even location. Um, but, but there are muscles. And if you think about the pelvic floor as part of the lower extremities, which it, it is kind of the anchor for then the two hips, right, um, yeah. as, as part of the pelvis. Uh, that's another way to kind of conceptualize if you're still like, mm, I don't know if that's my jam, but it's it's worth asking about. And honestly, if you're just like, how is it going to the bathroom? Does it feel very challenging? Are you having any urinary leakage, any leakage on accident or accidents? Um, people are usually just so relieved that you asked um, yeah. because they don't know who to talk to. They're like, yes. do I bring this up to my PCP? Do I bring this up to my GI doc? Do I bring this up to my OBGYN if I have one? Do I bring this up to my urologist? who am I supposed to talk to about this? And am I going to make them uncomfortable if I pick the wrong person? So you asking them is actually hugely helpful. I love that. So let's talk next about how we need to approach patients. And and I've talked on this podcast several times about trauma-informed care and like the best way to approach our patients who are scared, nervous, worried. Um, And the other thing that I learned from another guest on this podcast was always assume trauma. Mm -hmm. Just like assume it. So what would you recommend when we're talking to patients about pelvic floor issues, whether that's, you know, going to the bathroom, whether that's sex, what kind of function that is, pain, how, what do you suggest? Like, what's the best approach? Yeah, I think the best approach is explaining that you have questions that could be um, personal, telling them why you need the answers to those questions, and then, or what those answers will tell you, uh, and then asking them if you can ask the question. So you have low back pain. It's going to seem a little bit random if I just come out the gate fast and hot of like, how is your poop? So I'll say something like, you know, a lot of my patients who have low back pain also have issues with their bowels, whether that, and oftentimes that's constipation. I have some questions about that that might be able to help me get kind of lead us in the direction that we want to go with your treatment. Would it be okay if I asked you those questions now? Okay. I think that's a good way to ask um, anything else you would suggest? Like, what if somebody says no? Like, I don't want to talk to you about that. Um, then you respect their no. Like, I think if you've if you've told them why you that information would be helpful to them, and they're like, nah, I don't want to talk about it, then you don't talk about it. Um, and you can make you can probably make some assumptions if people don't want to talk about those things. You can kind of guess. Um, and I would say go with your gut on that in terms of where it's leading you treatment wise. Okay. Uh, For for the record, I've never had anyone say no. uh, Fair enough. I mean, I think sometimes like our environment is different and some of the the problem can be around that. So I'm thinking of part of our ED where all it is, there's curtains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, if somebody is going to come and like, ask me how it is going to the bathroom or ask me Mm -hmm. how my sexual function is like, I don't know if I'm going to want to like rip open the top and talk about that. 
with a curtain with somebody screaming behind the curtain next to me. Yeah, fair. Super. I also think the environment is overstimulating. I think they've been seen probably brusquely by other people. Mm -hmm. And the approach has to be like one of kind of establishing that therapeutic alliance, that trust, that like, I am the person who's going to sit and listen to you. And some of that I think is also body language. I think it's how you enter the room. It's how you explain your role. It's how you offer, how you share what you have to offer them, I think is what I would add to that. But I think you're absolutely right that if they say no, it can be frustrating, but we need to maybe let that go. Yeah, I think it's important. And because I also think that from a therapeutic alliance building standpoint, already you telling them what you can offer them and why you're asking is going to be different than almost any other provider. Um, yeah. Most other providers are going to come in to your point. They're they're going, it's going to be brusque. It's going to be brief. It's going to be quick. It's going to be very direct. Um, and not that you can't do a lot of those things. You can be very direct and also like time efficient and all of that. And also tell people, this is why this could be helpful to you. And would it be okay if I ask you that now? Yeah, I can also see that leading to a little bit of hope for patients because that happens a lot when we'll, we'll ask a question, no one's asked them. They might've seen 10 different people. They might've seen specialists. And then we ask just that right question. And they're like, no one's ever asked me that before. Mm -hmm. Or I'll say, I assume maybe you've also had some difficulty with constipation based on this, whether I've seen their imaging or I've seen, like they say they're not eating very much or they're not drinking very much. Mm -hmm. And they're just like so relieved to have somebody be like, yeah, yeah, I am. Is that related? I didn't think that could be related. Yeah. And even if someone is overstimulated, really upset, not in a position where they want to talk about it, or maybe they they even feel like they have the capacity to talk about it. Um, if they say no, that doesn't mean the the hard thing about I think medicine in general, but particularly medicine in the ED, is that once they leave, you don't necessarily know what happens, right? Right. Um, and I would not rule out that you even asking that question has now put it somewhere in their brain that this could be related, whether or not you ever see. I think that makes a lot of sense and giving people the freedom and permission to talk about it. And I think that happens a lot with physical therapists in general. So I think that leads me to my next topic, which is sex. And people, I have heard from people when I've posted about this in the past, like, that's not really something we should be talking to our patients about. Then I hear from other people that are like, no, sex is an ADL. And then I hear from patients who they didn't tell the physician that's how they got hurt. They are avoiding talking about it. They're afraid to talk about it. And that goes for patients in acute care as well, not just mm -hmm. in the emergency department. But when is a good time to bring that up? How do we bring that up? And why should we bring it up? Yeah, so I completely agree that it is an activity of daily living um, and that it is a huge part of not everyone's life, but a lot of people's lives. And it can be a huge contributor to um, people's self-esteem, to mm -hmm. their quality of life. Like it's not just about whether or not people can bone, right? It's so much right. more complicated than that. And it means so much more to people than that. And I think that meaning so much more is part of why people are hesitant to talk about it and why as providers, we get a little like squeamish about it. Um, sometimes that's our own stuff. And sometimes that's we're worried about hitting someone else's stuff. And again, I think talking about why this could be important to this person's care or how it could be related and then asking them if they, you can ask those questions is 
is kind of the move. Um, I think the reasons that you would want to know about sexual activity, one, if they've had any type of pelvic or hip um, uh, uh, surgery or procedure, like we were talking about before we we started playing, um, certainly we we know, right, that there are precautions with total hip replacements yeah. um, positionally. So anything that has a positional limitation, it needs to be discussed. Um, and honestly, anything that has to do with a dislocation, whether it's a post-operative or not, you, you want to ask questions about that. I think especially as the, the number of people that we're seeing with connective tissue disorders mm. um, continues to increase, um, that's going to be another thing that can absolutely be a driving factor of dislocations. Uh, I think it's important to ask when people are having, if people are having bladder and, battles, bladder and bowel stuff, um, asking them that mentioning to them that oftentimes people who have bladder and bowel dysfunction also have sexual dysfunction and depending on whether or not they're experiencing it can help to direct us in what direction for care can be really helpful because if the person is on the younger side has never been pregnant um, and they're having urinary incontinence or significant urinary urgency or frequency, or they oftentimes people will say, I feel like I have a urinary tract infection all the time, but I culture and it comes back negative. Mm. There's some pelvic floor dysfunction there. And if you give that person Kegels and pelvic floor muscle activation, that can actually increase their symptoms pretty significantly. So it's not, is it going to hurt them? Maybe not like in the long term, it's not dangerous. I don't think it's dangerous for their health, um, except that they're going to think, oh, Kegels are the answer. I did those. It was worse. Right. PT is obviously not for me. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think that goes for many conditions when people come in and they're like, I've been doing all these exercises and they pull out like five pages of like extension based exercises when that causes radiating symptoms, things like totally. that. So I can see that happening. Um, what do you think, what resources are there for patients who are having pain with sex? Because uh, like we alluded to, I had a patient who had actually had a hip dislocation during sex. I've had other patients who have injured their back, lifting their partner during sex. I've had patients who I feel like if they tell me they cannot get in a position of comfort for sleeping, mm -hmm. if they can't find a comfortable position to lie down in at all, they can't sleep at night. Like I am assuming those patients are having difficulty with sex. And I want to be able to provide them resources that they can go to and look for that will help them, especially if they're not really comfortable talking to somebody about it, or if they don't have the resources to follow up with somebody, because we see so many patients who do not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's almost like we planned this, except we really didn't. So I did write a book called um, yes. The Playbook for Painless Sex, and that is like a go-to guide that people can, can literally just order, either a digital copy or a physical copy from my website. Um, but I also think Instagram is actually, there's a lot of information on Instagram. So I think, especially as providers, if you can kind of go in and, and just find a couple of people that people can, that your patients can then passively kind of get that information can make a huge difference. So oftentimes people are not well ready or willing um, to engage in pelvic floor physical therapy. It really freaks people out, physical or occupational therapy. Um, and so for those folks, I will often recommend, like, just put this in your feed, get the information from there. Um, you, I think you'll be surprised at what you learn. Uh, and then oftentimes that's what folks need to then get comfortable potentially going to see somebody. Okay. Do you feel like there are a lot of resources in the medical community that we can also send our medical colleagues to so that they can learn more? 
because I feel like so many of the people that I work with, they, they don't talk about it. They don't screen for it. They're, they're uncomfortable with it. And I know one of the things you have said in the past is that trauma-informed care is not just for patients. It's also for providers and managing your own self and own stuff. What are, are there resources out there that providers can access to help them become more comfortable with these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. So I think from a um, just from an education standpoint, because again, I think that we put sex into this very specific box that is only related to very specific things in our brain. Um, And so looking, getting information from people like or organizations like the International ISS Ishwish, it's in it's right here next to me, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Um, the International Society for Pelvic Pain, International Pelvic Pain Society, excuse me, IPPS, um, the Academy of Pelvic of uh, Pelvic Floor has a journal. So I think that is a great place to start um, because it it's all very medicalized. And I think a lot of providers um, can can speak that language a little bit easier when it's not in this like we're talking about sex way, but we're talking look at all these muscles and nerves we're talking about instead. I think that's helpful. And then what would you suggest otherwise in the emergency department, ways for us to screen for patients that need pelvic health if it hasn't been something we've already talked about, whether that's bowel bladder, going to the bathroom, like what if it's a completely unrelated thing, but we just wanna be more aware? Like, are there things that people commonly say? Are there things like any kind of formal screenings we should be doing? How do we know? Yeah. So if people say anything or if they have a longstanding history of urinary tract infections or yeast infections, um, those are both things that I'm automatically thinking should go. Yes, they need to see an OBGYN, but they also should see a pelvic floor physical therapist because when things happen with our pelvic organs that are sitting so just like so very close to our pelvic floor muscles, um, you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but I have my emotional support pelvis. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that um, if anything's happening here, of course, these muscles are going to do something, right? Particularly yeah. because we can't see these muscles. We don't know what they're doing. We're often not aware of them because of all the reasons that we're also uncomfortable talking about sex. Um, and so these muscles can become very spasmed, very tight, very dysfunctional with completely without our knowledge. So yeah, uh, recurrent UTIs or um, yeast infections. The other thing that I want to name while we're just talking about this is, again, particularly in the postmenopausal population. So if we're talking about um, geriatric or even like younger 60s, 70s, um, especially cisgender women who are having any sort of you definitely your urinary tract infections, especially if they're recurrent. Right. We we are very familiar with UTIs in the emergency department setting. So mm-hmm. if that's happening frequently, um, asking them if they're on a topical estrogen cream um, as part of their um, just the, the, your evaluation is huge because as we're finding out now um, more and more people are benefiting from a topical estrogen cream. And of course we're not prescribing it, but that is an excellent, that's a very easy, low barrier to entry, low hanging fruit intervention for a lot of those folks. I learned that one on Twitter. Yeah. Yep, there are a couple. There are a couple of physicians who are, who are on it, which I love. Um, so always a- asking about that is great. I also think anytime you see a history of pelvic inflammatory disease, you want to mm. be a little. Th- that 
makes my spidey senses tingle, um, especially if they have a diagnosis of PID, um, but don't actually have a longstanding history of, um, of STIs. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes PID is, it's pelvic floor, uh, pelvic floor dysfunction and pelvic pain misdiagnosed. So that's uh. something to look out for. Um, anything that people say is lower abdominal, um, especially around any type of pelvic surgery, whether that's hysterectomy, um, if they've had their ovaries removed, if they've had, if it's gender affirming and they've had bottom surgery, um, if they've had low, a uh, low back surgery, even, um, making or a sling, like a urethral sling surgery. Yeah. We do see and, yeah. So any and all of that, um, also I would recommend a pelvic floor physical or a pelvic therapy, floor therapy, um, referral. Okay. I think the other population that I'm thinking of, are we get a lot of people with like PCOS coming mm -hmm. in for pain as well? Should those patients be referred as well? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I don't know enough about it to know if that's helpful or not helpful. Yeah. And the reality is with things like PCOS, endometriosis, um, any of those sort of like internal reproductive uh, health, reproductive system um, pathology, sometimes it is helpful and sometimes it isn't. The way I describe it to people is that there are so many, we know, right? Pain is super multifactorial. Yes. And we don't know what the primary drivers or the primary needle movers are until we do some evaluation. So I think especially, I mean, for sure, if it's a new diagnosis and they're this is the first time you're seeing they're in the ED um, and you, I think, referring them to their OBGYN is awesome. I think if you're, especially if you're getting people who are coming in repeatedly or you're seeing that they have this like pretty robust medical history, um, getting them to a physical, uh, a physical or occupational therapist can be a, a hu huge benefit. Awesome. Okay. What is, what is like one thing you want to leave people with who practice in the ED? Whether they're PTs or OTs, because OTs are starting to practice in the ED so much more as well, which is just fabulous. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I think to your general point about operating at the top of our scope, I think mm -hmm. that this is a huge part that can make an enormous difference in people's quality of lives. And I think that we're doing folks a huge disservice if we let our discomfort with it uh, impact our ability to offer them options. I mean, that was perfect. Way to sum it up. Okay, how can people find you? How can they find your book? How can they find your content? How can they learn more about inclusive care? How can they learn more about trauma-informed care, pelvic health? And this is probably a big question, but since people listen to this podcast in a lot of different locations, how do they find a pelvic floor therapist near them? Yeah, great. So let's start with that one. So finding a pelvic floor physical therapist, you can do it a couple of different ways. Um, you can do it through the Academy of Pelvic Health has a therapist finder. Um, you can just search, if you search Academy of Pelvic Health, uh, PT finder, it'll pop right up. Um, mm -hmm. Global Pelvic Health Alliance and Pelvic Guru um, have another kind of directory of folks. So that's another good one. If you search Pelvic Guru, find a provider, that'll come up and that'll be both, that will not only be PTs, but also OTs, also MDs. Um, okay. And I think if you're looking for someone in your area, especially if you're dealing with someone who has persistent pelvic pain, I would look at the IPPS International Pelvic Pain Society website, and they have a directory as well as the ISWISH um, directory. Great. So a couple different places to look. Oh, and if you're looking for someone 
So menopause, as we were just discussing, um, menopause is another one of those things that we've ignored for an extraordinarily long time. Yeah. Don't have a lot of research on people yeah. get really hand wavy about. Mm. Um, so finding there is a menopause society and I recommend, um, just putting that on your radar as well, because those are, that's going to be how you're going to be able to find, um, physicians who are, who are, have more training in that, um, as well as other types of providers. So I always like to mention that as well. Um, and you can find me online. Instagram is probably the best. And it's my first dot last name. So K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A dot Holland, like the country. Um, and I put out a bunch of information, not only about pelvic health, but also about trauma-informed care. I am doing some research um, on trauma-informed care practices in pelvic health uh, settings. So that's exciting stuff that's happening. Uh, and I talk a lot about pelvic, uh, sorry, excuse me, trauma-informed care principles and practices, usually in my setting, which is, of course, pelvic health, but that mm -hmm. can be similarly applied across settings. Um, and if you're interested in the playbook for painless sex, you can find that either through my Instagram or on my website, www.inclusivecarellc.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. You've been in the ED now and you're officially discharged. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.